If you'd like to take your Bible again and turn with me this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the smaller church Bible, it's page 1145, and in the larger print, 1772. First Corinthians 3, and we'll read the whole of this chapter. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, The builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. 
and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This is God's word. And as we come to this, we probably need a reminder of what we've heard previously in this letter. Paul has spent considerable time explaining how as Christians we live by a certain kind of wisdom. There are essentially only two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom of this world and there's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world is built on human pride. It's all about what we humans can figure out and what we humans can achieve. And in contrast to that, the wisdom of God defies human pride. God in his wisdom chose to bring salvation through a crucified Savior. God in his wisdom chooses to work through weak, unimpressive people. None of that fits with proud human wisdom. So there are two kinds of wisdom, Paul has told us. And in chapter 2, he said, we can only understand God's wisdom when he gives us that understanding as a gift. That is another way God defies our pride. We can only see and accept true eternal wisdom when God reveals it to us by his Holy Spirit. So when we last looked at this letter a couple of weeks ago, the truth we finished with with was this. Every Christian has access to true wisdom because every Christian has God's Holy Spirit. And so God's wisdom is available to each of us. We have access to that dimension of reality. Our understanding as Christians is not limited to merely natural things. We can have knowledge of spiritual things too. Now, as they were first reading this letter, the Corinthians would have been loving all this. They would have been eating up what Paul said in chapter 2. Yes, of course, we're spiritual people. We're wise people. We know more than our neighbors do. We have insight into God's eternal wisdom. We always knew we were special. That's how they would have been reacting. But then Paul hits them with a right hook that none of them would have seen coming. It's there in chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? This passage is about growing up. And these opening verses make the point that the church must grow in maturity. It's tempting for you and for me to think, I've trusted in Jesus, so the spiritual side of things is taken care of for me. And in terms of our standing with God, that is true. But just as a baby will grow up and progress, so baby Christians will grow up and progress. 
because living things grow. And what's true of babies and baby Christians must also be true of local Christian fellowships. The church must mature and progress as well. And if it is truly alive, it will. But Paul is pointing out that the Corinthian church has stalled in its growth. Notice Paul doesn't doubt this is a true church. He doesn't doubt there is spiritual life in these people. In verse 1, notice he calls them brothers and sisters, meaning fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. So these people have the Holy Spirit of God, but they're not living like it. It's not really showing in their lives. It's not showing in the way they relate to one another. So Paul says, the things I said in chapter 2 do apply to you. You have access to God's wisdom. But I'm not seeing much evidence that you're taking hold of God's wisdom and living it out. He's saying to these Corinthians, you're so proud of yourselves. You're convinced you're so spiritual. But you're not living differently from people outside the church. You're following the same patterns of life the rest of Corinth follows. And Paul then gives some evidence for that. In verse 3, he says there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Verse 4, they're dividing into factions, gathering around their favorite leaders. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I'm on his team. Now, Paul has lots of other evidence as well as this. This call to grow up, it's introducing a new section in the letter. Paul is going to work through a whole bunch of areas where they have growing up to do, including sex and greed and the way they use their spiritual gifts. So the challenge to grow up in how we think about church leaders, that's just what Paul starts with. And the big point is that immaturity is normal in babies. It's normal in baby Christians. But after a while, if there's no evidence of growing up, then something is seriously wrong. And Paul wants the Corinthians to take a look at themselves and recognize that something's wrong. In verse 2, he says, I gave you milk, not solid food. He's talking there about the first time he came to Corinth. When the church started, that was when these people were born again through faith in Jesus. And in those early days, Paul didn't expect that their new life would have impacted every area of their thinking and behavior. They had grasped the basics that there was forgiveness available in Jesus. That was all they needed to be saved from their sin. But at this stage, that was quite some time ago. And by now, the wisdom of the cross ought to have made a difference in how they treat one another. It ought to have altered their outlook and their priorities. But it hasn't. They're still dividing over whose favorite preacher is the best preacher. The church is full of rivalry. And that's out of place among people who've been Christians for a while. We all expect babies to have trouble digesting their food. 
We expect babies to have trouble being considerate of others. We don't expect 18-year-olds to still be vomiting over their parents and screaming when they don't get what they want. And if we've been a Christian for a while and our lives don't look any different from when we became a Christian, then it's time for us to wise up. When I say our lives should look different, this is not about superficial things. It's not about carrying a big Bible around or wearing a Christian badge or going to Christian concerts instead of non-Christian ones. This is about how we treat one another. We ought not to be bad-mouthing people behind their backs. We ought not to be sulking if we don't get our way. Or holding grudges against people. Or forming cliques that leave out the awkward people. All that kind of stuff is for spiritual babies. Maybe it's understandable for a few months after you become a Christian. While you're still figuring out what it means to live as a Christian. But after that, it's time to grow up. And when it comes to the Corinthians, the big irony is they thought they were grown up. Because they had impressive spiritual gifts. Paul will talk about them later in the letter. But their giftedness just makes their immaturity all the more sad and pathetic. They were gifted, but they couldn't even get along with one another. They were gifted, but their immaturity was tearing the church apart. It's equally pathetic today when a church has great musicians and able preachers and creative artists and super organizers and persuasive evangelists. But at the same time as all that, there are people in the church who won't even talk to one another. Or who threaten to leave if they don't get what they want. Or who start stirring up discontentment if they're not offered a certain position or a certain responsibility. So let's not confuse ourselves, giftedness, with maturity. We don't all have the same gifts, but we all do have the same calling to grow up, to show increasing maturity no matter what our gifts happen to be. Because God cares more about our maturity than he does about our gifts. The church must grow in maturity. And having given that challenge, now Paul gives some help. He mentions three truths that will help us to mature. First of all, maturity comes by understanding that God rules the church. Paul is going to make his point here by using the example he's already picked up on, this division in Corinth between the church leaders, or over the church leaders. But the point he's going to make applies to all kinds of maturity in the church. We will begin to mature when we understand that God rules the church, not us. By lining up in teams behind their favorite preacher, the Corinthians were acting like the church 
belonged to those preachers, to Paul or Apollos. But Paul dismantles that idea. Look in verse 5, he says, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. In the first century world, there was nothing glamorous about the word servant. Servants were at the bottom of the pile. And Paul says, church leaders are not celebrities, they're servants. And their differences are not down to one being better than another. The differences are actually down to God. He assigned them different kinds of personalities and different gifts because he has different tasks for them to do. So what's the point in attaching yourself to one servant instead of another? Like there's some glory to be had in that. And then Paul takes this down a further notch in terms of presenting a humble picture of things. He then compares the church to a field and the church leaders to farm laborers, the kind of people Corinth would have looked down on. Look in verse 6. He says, I planted the seed. In other words, I came to Corinth and shared the gospel to begin with. Then Apollos came along later. He taught you more. He watered the seed. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters does anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field. Earlier, Paul said God assigns people their tasks in the church. Here he says... It's not leaders who make the church grow. It's God. They're all dependent on God, and each one of them can only do part of what needs to be done. So it's absurd to fall out over them. It's like saying the farm laborer who plants the seed is better somehow than the one who waters it. Now, I don't think we as a church are in danger of doing exactly what the Corinthians are doing. At least I haven't seen any t-shirts or any banners with different elders' names on them. But let's guard against doing this in more subtle ways. I'm thinking about the temptation to try and play one leader off against another. We've all seen children do that. They don't get the answer they want from one parent, so they run off to ask the same question to the other parent, or maybe a grandparent. Trying to do that with church leaders is not mature Christian behavior. And actually, it's potentially harmful behavior. It can sow seeds of resentment among the leaders themselves. Leaders in the church do not exist to help people get their own way. So let's learn to see them not as competitors, not as people to be manipulated, but as fellow workers in God's service, or fellow workers who belong to God. Church leaders are one team of servants. 
They're all using their varied gifts and personalities to serve the same master. And if we all take that truth to heart, it will go a long way to guard us against rivalry and factions in the church. Maturity comes by understanding that God rules the church and by understanding that God cares about the church. Paul's just compared the church to a field tended by a team of farm laborers. Now at the very end of verse 9, he switches and compares it to a construction site being worked on by a team of builders. And they're working on a specific kind of building, a temple of God. And yes, in the first place, when Paul mentions builders, he has church leaders in mind. But there's no doubt we can also widen this out to include all members of the church. Because every single member of the church is contributing something to the church. And that's true even if we don't do anything at all except roll up to Sunday services. In that case, we are contributing negatively. We're sending a loud message that God doesn't matter to us all that much. And neither do our brothers and sisters in Christ. The church member who's careless and uninvolved, or who's more interested in serving themselves than serving God, that church member is making a contribution. They're helping to weaken the church. By their example, they're discouraging others from being committed. They're encouraging others to think church is all about me instead of all about God and his family. So in this section, we all qualify as builders. And what we need to see is that God cares very much about his church. And therefore, he cares very much about how each one of us builds. And because he cares so much, he will hold each of us accountable for how we build. The building we do will bring consequences for us. Look at verse 10. Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. I think we all understand that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. The church is built on the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. If he was not the Son of God, if he had not died for our sin and risen again, there simply would not be a church. But here Paul says, everything that's built on the foundation has to be in keeping with the foundation. So if the foundation is the message of Jesus, then the walls and the roof must be the message of Jesus too. Everything we do as a church should fit with God's eternal wisdom, shown at the cross. And so if we sideline the cross, or if we downplay the cross, if we run the church like it's a business, or an entertainment center, 
If we focus on helping people feel good about themselves, telling them they're really okay just as they are, if that's what the church is about, then it has deviated severely from its foundation. It's being built with the wisdom of this age rather than the eternal wisdom of God. And obviously, it's the church leaders who set the emphases and the direction for the church. They will bear the greatest weight of responsibility for the way the church is being built. But every member of the church has a responsibility. We all participate in the life of the church. We all make some sort of contribution, either positively or negatively. So let's ask ourselves, are we participating in ways that show we belong to the crucified Savior? Do we share something of his humility? His willingness to sacrifice himself and serve others? His commitment that not his own will, but his Father's will be done? Does our contribution to the church follow Jesus' example? Or are we denying the message of the cross by squabbling with each other, demanding our own way, trying to get one over on others? Do we deny the wisdom of God by acting like church is all about me? Someone has said the cross is not only our creed, it is the standard of our ministry. The cross is not only our creed, it is the standard of our ministry. In other words, the cross is not just a message we believe in, it gives us a pattern for how to live. Not seeking to climb to the top, but being willing to humble ourselves. Trusting that God will lift us up in his own way, in his own time. Each of us is building and we're to take care how we're building. Because the church is God's temple and he cares about it very much. He cares about it so much that he will hold us accountable for how we build. Verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. These verses are talking about judgment. But it's important to see this is not judgment of the person, it's judgment of their work. If a person genuinely belongs to Jesus, their eternal future is secure in him. Salvation is by God's grace alone. It's not based on our works. Now, it is true that a person who's been truly saved by God's grace will show evidence of that in their life. So if your life is characterized by unrepented sin, if you opt out of Christian fellowship, then you have no reason to feel secure. 
Paul will deal with that kind of person later in the letter. But here, he's confident these people are Christians. They're involved in church life. Their lives are not characterized by defiant, unrepentant sin. But they are careless about growing and maturing. They're not that bothered about becoming more like Jesus. They're not really doing the challenging work of asking how they can honor him with the little details of their lives. The way they relate to one another and the way they contribute to the church. They're just going about things in church the way they used to go about things outside the church. And Paul says if you build like that, you will miss out. In verse 12, he lists six kind of building materials. But they fall into just two groups. There are things that will survive fire, gold, silver, and costly stones. And there are things that will burn up in fire, wood, hay, and straw. And in verse 13, he says, The day, that's the day Jesus returns, will show each person's work for what it really is. Our life's contribution to the church will either stand as part of Christ-centered, eternal kingdom of God, or it will go up in smoke. And we will enter God's kingdom as one escaping through the flames. Today we might say by the skin of our teeth. We have nothing to show for the years we spent participating in church life. That is a pretty sobering thought. For church leaders, that means we need to take great care in the direction we set for the church and the direction we maintain for the church. Is it based on human wisdom and human gimmicks and fads? Or is it based on the eternal wisdom of the cross? The wisdom of God that defies human pride. Are we more concerned to tell people what they want to hear? Or are we willing to be servants of God and his word? Whatever people think of the message. And that means, of course, that what looks impressive here and now will not necessarily be impressive on Judgment Day. A lot of what's impressive now might turn to dust on Judgment Day. If it's been constructed according to the wisdom of this age. And then applying this to all of us, who wants their lifetime in the church fellowship to amount to nothing but dust and ashes? Who wants to look back at all the opportunities they were given and face the fact that what could have been glorious and even the little simple opportunities can produce something that is eternally glorious? The little opportunities to serve and to care and to love. Who wants to look back and see only wasted opportunities? Wood, hay, and straw. You and I will grow in maturity as we realize how much God cares about his church. If we want to please and honor him, we will begin to care very much about how we participate in the church. 
We will not be careless about our attitudes and our words and about the needs of our brothers and sisters. We will begin to grasp how the service we do now and the way we speak and act now can be part of something eternal and glorious. Back in verse 8, Paul used the word reward. He uses it again here in verse 14. And whatever that reward exactly will consist of, surely part of it is simply seeing that your service for Jesus has carried over into eternity. It's come with you. Your service counted for eternity. Not necessarily because you did grand and spectacular things that produced big explosive results, but simply because you served according to God's wisdom rather than the wisdom of this world. When we read this earlier, you may have noticed there is a sting in the tail in this section. It's a sting that shows just how much God cares about his church. We've heard that the consequences, what they're going to be for those who build with worthless materials, their building will amount to nothing. But now in verses 16 and 17, we hear the consequences for those who actively harm the church. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. In these verses, the you is plural in the original language. So Paul is talking about the church as God's temple. This is about the fellowship of believers, the body. Not just individual believers. And we're told... God will destroy those who destroy his church. So what kind of things destroy his church? Well, according to the New Testament, false teaching, defiant, unrepented sin, creating division that splits the church. And when we realize what destroys the church, maybe we can begin to see we dare not fool around with the distinction between building badly in the church and destroying it. There may be a fairly thin line between those two things. Who of us knows when that refusal to be clear on what the Bible is clear about, or that bitterness we play with and stroke a little bit because we like it, or that refusal to forgive, or that selfish ambition, or that sin we excuse in ourselves. Who knows when those things cross over from being just bad building to being destructive. You and I dare not play around with these things. We dare not be content with immaturity. Because these verses show us immaturity is not safe. Mark Dever says, Perhaps you have not considered the importance of the church to God. It is his, and he will have it and protect it, even against you if need be. 
When we grasp that, it helps us get serious about growing up. Finally, in verses 18 to 23, maturity comes by understanding that God shares his riches with the church. The first part of this is really a summary of what Paul has been saying since the middle of chapter 1. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So the road to maturity involves turning from the wisdom of this age and turning our hearts and minds to God's wisdom. As Christians, we can do that because we have the Spirit of God. God's wisdom is available to us. But we have to consciously commit to take it on board in our lives, to live it out. And one thing that will help us with that is the realization that God shares his riches with the church. Look at verse 21. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. If we remember the context here, some of the Corinthians were trying to claim just one of these leaders as their personal guru. But in fact, Paul says that he and Apollos and Cephas, that's Peter, they're all faithful servants of God. They're all working with the same goal to build up the church. So trying to line up behind just one of them, that's silly. They're all gifts from God to the church. They all have good things to give the church. And it's equally silly today when Christians latch onto one teacher and they act like they're disciples of that teacher. And so they don't need to listen to anything unless it's been said by that teacher. God is much more generous than that. He has more riches at his disposal than just one Bible teacher or church leader. Yes, we need to check carefully that teachers are being faithful to Scripture, that they're teaching the Bible accurately, but there are plenty of teachers who are doing that. God does not limit himself to just one mouthpiece, but some Christians act like he does. We get rid of a whole lot of quarrels in the church today simply by recognizing that people in other churches can be faithful teachers too. God can use people in other churches. God can build his church through styles of preaching and styles of music and styles of a whole lot of other things that we personally don't really warm to. So rather than writing off other servants of God because they do things differently from us, let's relax and praise God for the variety of ways he works in the world. The variety of personalities and styles that he uses. Yes, we have one gospel and one Savior and one Holy Spirit, but we don't all have to do things the same way. 
or even say and sing things the same way. We're not the only workers God has on his payroll. And then here at the end, Paul widens it out, way out. God's riches extend much further than just the people he uses. This world we live in and this life we're living, they're not just things for us to get through with gritted teeth. God has rich blessings for us to enjoy here. Yes, this world is broken, our bodies are fragile, but it's still God's world. He still gives us life and breath and the sun and the rain. And death is not something for us to fear. It leads to eternal riches. And the point is, when we look at the big things of life and death and eternity, when we see them with the wisdom of God, we realize all this is God's. And because we belong to him, all that belongs to him belongs to us. The wisdom of this world says you need to fight and you need to squabble and you need to compete for things or you're going to miss out. The wisdom of God says live for me and you cannot miss out. I own the universe. Be a humble servant of the cross and you will experience ever-increasing riches of my goodness and power and love. Both now and in the future, in the big ways and the little ways, God shares his riches with the church. And as we set our hearts on those riches, we will grow up. We'll live for what's really important. We will become sweeter people. And we will become stronger people and God will be glorified in us. Let's pray. Lord God, as we begin a new year, we want to grow up. Whatever stage we're at, we want to grow. We want to leave behind our selfishness and spiritual laziness and the pride that makes us compete with one another, even in the church. Will you help us to recognize how much you care about the church? Help us to care more about the contribution we make to your church, how we value each other and treat each other. We thank you for the riches you have given the church. We thank you for each one of these brothers and sisters sitting around us. We acknowledge they are your gifts to the church. They're your gifts to us. Will you help us to look at one another in fresh ways and see what each other person has to contribute? And will you deliver us from any rivalry and any division? Father, we pray that those things will never get a foothold in this church. And we ask all this for your glory. Amen. Before we gather around the Lord's table, we're going to join in a song that is full of hope for the church. And it's full of the glory of the church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord.